0: You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's Word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at com. We're in John 17, as uh, as you heard, John seventeen twenty through 26. Um, in all seriousness, I want you to know if... You have trusted in Christ. Even if you haven't, I want you to know that there's someone who's prayed for you, that you might know him, that you might believe in him. Uh, That's true, I am certain, in Matt and Rebecca's life, uh, some perhaps even in this room uh, who are praying for them uh, to put their faith and trust in Christ. And their testimony is both a testimony of God's grace and a testimony of answered prayer. Uh, In my own life... I remember becoming a believer when I was 14 uh, through the invitation of a neighbor and a friend at school to join them at church. And as soon as I became a believer, um, I was most burdened for my dad and my stepmom, that they might come to faith in Christ. And I began to pray. I think perhaps the first prayer I prayed as a Christian maybe uh, was that my dad might come to faith in Christ. And um, much to my surprise, when I went home to tell him about my newfound faith in Christ, he wasn't as equally as excited as I was. Um, in fact, he was rather dismissive and uninterested uh, in this new life that I had found in Christ. And uh, now that I'm a parent, I can understand, um, you know, as a child uh, shares with you, perhaps this radical change in their life, you're like, I don't know, you know. <laughs> and I had lived 14 years of pretty, uh, pretty decent uh, hard-heartedness and stubbornness and uh, And rebellion mixed in with a little bit of uh, sweetness, I'm sure. Um, But um, my dad was skeptical. And uh, for the next nearly four years, my dad remained skeptical. And when I tried to have conversations with my dad about my faith and as awkward as a way that a teenage son can uh, with his father, uh, as I would fumble over my words and uh, just as quickly as I would be trying to share the gospel with him, I'd realize I probably needed to ask for his forgiveness for the words that I had just said or the stubbornness or the attitude that i had had. And, and so it's a very, very live, worked out, you know, uh, repentance and uh, demonstration of God's grace as you're trying to tell him uh, about this grace that you found. But my dad was fond of saying to me, um, uh, he, his background, uh, didn't, didn't graduate high school, barely knew how to read, was just kind of a hard working guy, kind of self-made uh, in, uh, in his eyes. And he, he would say to me, he would say, Michael, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. In other words, I'm kind of, I am who I am and I'm kind of stuck in my ways. And uh, I realize you don't have to be old to be stuck in your ways. Some of you may be old souls and already stuck uh, a little bit in your ways. Um, but uh, it is true in life. The older you get, the uh, I think, generally speaking, a little, little bit easier it is to kind of get stuck in your ways. And if you hadn't changed yet, what's the sense in trying to change now? And <clears throat> I didn't really have a good answer for my dad, but... Um, we went through some hardship, and uh, my dad and stepmom's marriage resulted in he and my stepmom getting a divorce when I was a senior in high school. And by this time, I had a car, and uh, I could drive. And so I told my dad that I was going to pick him up. Um, and I wouldn't recommend this tactic for Easter if you invite your friends uh, to tell them you're going to pick him up and not tell them where you're going. Um, but it was my father, and so that's a little bit of an exception. Uh, so I think I just told him that I was picking him up and that we were going they had some food at church. We were having this kind of block Party and there was a special speaker that night, and so he came with me. and uh, And I think he lived by himself and didn't want to cook, so that, that was the main motivation of why he came with me. and um, And as uh, we were at church that night, and the speaker shared, um, he was he's a pastor actually uh, in California. His name's Greg Laurie, um, but he's he's kind of in many ways a modern day Billy Graham of sorts, uh, and has a ministry called Harvest ministries, and um, and he was speaking at our church, and he shared the gospel. This is a simple message uh, that you kind of heard shared in the testimonies, and you'll hear perhaps even our passage today that, that God made us to know him and enjoy him, but the reality is we don't know him and enjoy him the way we were made to because we sin, and our sin separates us from God. Uh, but God doesn't leave us in our sin. Uh, the reality is we, we don't want to be in our sin either. We all try to get out of it. Um, and and we, we try to escape it. We try to ignore it. We try to cope with it. We try to cover the broken world we live in and the sin that we deal with. And all the different avenues we try Ultimately, you're kind of like, uh, I don't know if you've seen those little uh, games that you have the bungee cord on you and you run and it pulls you back, you know, Um, you know, we, we try to run out of our brokenness. We try to run out of our sin. But every time it snaps us back, we can't get out of it on our own. And God didn't leave us to ourselves and he didn't leave us on our own. He sent Christ. Uh, And Christ died uh, on the cross for our sins, having lived a perfect life, which none of us have ever done. Um, And he died not as an example, merely to to motivate us to live good lives, but he died uh, in our place as a substitute for the forgiveness of our sins. Um, And if he died for us, that would be newsworthy enough. But what's really uh, unbelievable and uh, what we're ultimately called to believe um, is that he rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, the perfect life he lived and the sacrificial death he died is sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins. And the simple message of John three sixteen still rings true today that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Uh, that simple message that to believe in Christ is to have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And, uh, and that message is received when we admit our sin and we trust in him and and that was the gospel message. That was the message that was preached the day that I came to know Christ as a 14-year-old. And some four years later, I was sitting in that same church with my dad. And, and I was praying that my dad would have ears to hear and a heart to receive the gospel that day. And I, I still, it amazes me that uh, in the invitation that day, as it was shared, the speaker said these words. He said, you may be thinking to yourself that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Um, but I want to tell you today that you're not a dog. You're a human being made in the image of God, and the gospel isn't a trick. It's good news. It's true news for anyone who will admit their sin and trust in Christ. And my dad tapped me on my knee and said, I want to give my life to Christ. I want to follow him. And I'm reminded, uh, my dad, uh, just we actually saw a memory uh, nine years ago, we were announcing that we were expecting our daughter and my dad passed away right before we found out we were having a girl almost nine years ago. Um, but as I share that today and I think about Matt and Rebecca's testimony, I'm reminded of the power of prayer and that no one comes to know Christ apart from someone praying for them. And, and even if no human being uh, that you know has prayed for you, John seventeen twenty tells us that Jesus has prayed for you and for me. Look at John 17, verse 20. Allergy medicine didn't kick in this morning. (laughs) Jesus said, I do not ask for those only, speaking of his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus has prayed for everyone who would believe in him through the message of the gospel. That message that was first shared by his first disciples and has been shared from that time until today by those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. It's it's this prayer and it's this message of the gospel that is the foundation of every person coming to faith in Christ. And as we've walked through uh, this uh, this chapter, we've been in this series called Teach Us to Pray. We looked at Matthew 6 and the Lord's Prayer uh, and how Jesus teaches us to pray a pattern for our prayer. And here we are in John 17 in what's known as the high priestly prayer. In which we get a glimpse into what Jesus prays for us. Um, and, and how he prays and how that should inform our prayers. And, and throughout this chapter, Jesus has been praying that God would be glorified through the church being united. Through the church being sanctified by the word and through the church being sent into the world. And so here in John 17, 20 through 26, it comes to a conclusion. And though Jesus has prayed for our unity before now, our unity and our witness take on center stage in these final uh, few verses. And I want us to see three things that Jesus prays for that should help inform our prayers. And the first is that he prays for our witness. John seventeen twenty, we see that. He prays for those who would believe through their word, through the testimony of the disciples. Now, Jesus is praying, obviously, for his first disciples here. But this prayer is true for every believer because no one comes to believe except through the testimony of uh, the gospel, which is shared by people. Um, and so we, we have this, uh, this prayer for our witness. And as you continue to read on, if you skip down to verse 23... It says that he's praying that we would be in him and he in us that that we might be perfectly one so that the world may know that that Jesus came that that the father sent him and that um and that the father loved him even uh, as you loved me, he says, that, that the Father loves us even as he loved Jesus, he says in verse 23. So we see this that the witness, uh, the means of our witness through their word in verse 20, and the motive for our witness that as we share, we want the world to know, we want the world to believe that Jesus came. According to the plan of the Father to accomplish our salvation through His death and resurrection. And He's given us His Spirit. This is the revelation of the glory of God that John 17 says Jesus came and revealed God's glory to us. He revealed the very character, purpose, and plan of God. If you want to know who God the Father is, if you want to know uh, what the one true and living God is like, just look at Jesus, the, the Gospel of John tells us. And so we see here how He prays for our witness. And I'm encouraged by this because this is really one of the last recorded prayers that we have of Jesus. There's a few more next week. We'll look at Jesus's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus's prayer on the cross as we as we celebrate Easter. Um, And but here is the, the longest and one of the last prayers we have of Jesus. And in it, he's praying for the effectiveness and the fruit of our witness. That That others might believe through our testimony that others might in the world might believe that we would live and share so that others might believe what encouragement it is that that Jesus has prayed for us to be effective in our witness and faithful in our witness but but something that I want to just push into and encourage us to think about here uh, that is easy to miss over to skip over in the in the letters of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul often prays that he would be clear in sharing the gospel, that he would be bold in sharing the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 3.1 says that, there, that the gospel might run ahead, uh, that there might be an open door for the gospel. Paul is often praying that he himself would be equipped to share the gospel. But notice what Jesus prays here. Jesus tells us that the means of our witnesses through, through the word, through the testimony of the gospel... Um, and and our own testimony of how the gospel has changed us. But he's not praying particularly for the effectiveness of our witness, per se, uh, or praying specifically for us as we witness. Notice who he's praying for. He's praying for the people who would believe. He's praying for the people who would believe. So not so much that we would be bold and effective in our witness elsewhere. We see that he's praying for those who will believe through our witness. That's why we can say no one comes to faith in Christ apart from someone praying for them. And if you don't know them by name, you can know that Jesus has prayed for you. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, know that this is the prayer Jesus was praying for you. That you might believe. That you might trust in him. And and it's an encouragement to us. And, and we, we often talk a lot about our own responsibility to bear witness to the gospel. And we try to equip and encourage and, and we're reminded that the only thing that sustains our witness. Listen, it's not me telling you to, to try harder and do better. The only thing that's going to sustain our witness is being amazed continually at the grace of God. That's the only motive I've got. Uh, I don't I don't got guilt. I don't got a game plan. I don't have a five step plan for how to do it. The only thing I got is that Jesus is amazing. And the more you look at him the more you're going to be willing and ready to talk about him. Um, and, and, and so the, the, only, the only thing that I want to do to motivate your, your carrying out your witness is tell you to look at Jesus, but also follow Jesus' pattern here. Who are you praying for? I, I, I was convicted as I thought about this, and here recently as I think about my prayers, I've been praying for an opportunity, and I've been praying that I would be more bold in some of the relationships that I have, had that I have, it's easy sometimes to get psyched out. The longer you know somebody that maybe you've had a conversation, it's hard to come back to it or you're unsure of how they're going to receive it. Um, sometimes you just got to open your mouth. This week I was encouraged to uh, got a message. Somebody just had the opportunity. It wasn't sure if they should, but they just opened their mouth and shared the gospel with someone and they didn't know how it was going to go or how it was going to be received, but they trusted God with it. and They, they, they shared the gospel and left it in God's hands. It's such an encouragement and a reminder of what we're to do. But, but I was convicted not just to pray that I would have opportunities and that I would be bold, but to take my eyes off myself and be praying for the people that God has put in my life. So who are you praying for? Who are you joining in with Jesus and praying that they might believe through our testimony, through the word of the gospel? Jesus has prayed for our witness We should pray also like him for those who might believe through the gospel. But a central aspect of what Jesus requests in these verses is that he prays for our present unity in verses 20 through 23. Look at verses 21 through 23 and and notice how many times it says this. If you allow your eyes to fall over it as I read in verse 21, Jesus says that he's praying that they may all be one. And verse 22, he goes on and he says, he prays that they may be one even as we are one in the same way that the Father in his Trinitarian nature, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, dwells in perfect unity. He prays that we would share in that unity. And then he says in verse 23 that they may become perfectly one, insinuating that we grow in unity. That the unity we have is shared with the God ahead, uh, and that the, the reality of, of unity in our daily life is that we grow into it and, and that we've been given uh, and have this unity that's in Christ. So what, what is the unity that it's talking about? It's such a central part of these few verses. It's important for us to unpack it. And the, the first thing I want us to see is that it's a unity in relationship. Unity in relationship. It says, if you look at verse 20, he's praying for those who would believe through their word that they may be one. Now notice what he does here. And it can be a little confusing as you read this. In John fifteen, it talks about abiding in Christ, and He and us, and His loving us, and us in His love, and His joy would be complete in us. And here you get to John seventeen. It's like He and you, and me and Him, and you and us. And you're like, what's going on here? You know, um, there's a lot of you know things happening. And so, but listen and follow with me um, as He says this: that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, the Father. They also may be in us, the Father and the Son, and by extension, the Holy Spirit. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So the, the, the unity that we have is a shared relationship with God. God exists eternally in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, Deuteronomy 6.4 says. And in the revelation of Scripture, we see that God is, is one and yet is not one in solitarity, and solitaire sense, but he is one in complexity, if you will. Um, that's a new word uh, that I made up. Um, he's one in complexity in that he is one in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. It's not, it's not like God is one person with three masks. Uh, sometimes we, we try to explain the Trinity uh, in the sense of like, I'm, I am a uh, a husband, a father, and a son. Uh, I'm one person with these three roles. Um, that's, you know, that's that's not an accurate description of God because he's not, he's not one person with three roles. He's one God, one being with three persons, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not like some days he wears the father mask and some days he wears the son mask and... Some days he wears the Holy Spirit mask and that he's just functioning in these different ways. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible explains that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are unique in their person and share the same essence and and divinity, that they are equally God and distinct in persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that they have existed for all eternity in perfect unity. No conflict between the Father and the Son. In perfect unity they have dwelt. In perfect love they have dwelt. In in perfect communion they exist. And have always existed. And not out of needing anything in their own part, but out of an overflow and a desire to share in who they were, God created. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And His creation was good. And he made at the pinnacle of his creation humanity in his image. And he made us in his image that we might know him, that we might enjoy a relationship with him. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. He's, He's revealing the very character of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's saying that we have real participation in this relationship. We have union with God marked by our confidence that we are loved by God. With the same love that the Father has towards the Son. That's what verse 23 says. Not only do we share in this perfect unity, but we share in the love. The, same, the, the love that the Father has for the Son, verse 23 says. He has demonstrated to us. He has shown us that love. What love we, we have been loved with by the Father. How deep the Father's love for us as we sing. That, that, that Christ would, would die in our place and for our sin. Our our relationship with God, one commentator says, is not exactly the same as the relationship between the Father and the Son. There is a unique sense. The Father and Son are distinct persons, but eternally one in essence. But we're brought into relationship with them through faith, placed in Christ, and the Spirit of Christ lives in us. And they say this, by virtue of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we enter a deep, abiding, never-ending relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you might be saying, Michael, that's a lot more than, uh, you know, I was bargaining on trying to wrap my arms around. Well, well, welcome to the, the joy and the beauty of Christianity. We get all of eternity to wrap our mind and our arms around this truth that the one true and living God who has revealed himself in the word as Father, Son and Holy Spirit has invited us to know him and to grow in knowing him now and for all eternity. We have this relationship with God. It's a unity in relationship. 1 John 1 verses 3 through 4 shows that our our relationship with God, our fellowship with God also is shared in our relationship with one another. Uh, Same author of the Gospel of John wrote 1 John, which is at the back of the New Testament. It says this, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim. Also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. Here's relationship with one another. As indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You can tell it's the same author because some of the same themes in John 17, John is talking about in 1 John. He's saying we have relationship with God and relationship with one another. And this is important because we have a unity. He prays in verse 21 that we may all be one. I think there's this unity that's important for us to understand that it is a, a unity across time and history with the church that we, are, uh, we stand in relationship with one another in continuity with the apostolic church. So when we, we think about our oneness, our oneness with the historical apostolic church going all the way back uh, to Jesus' first disciples and carried on through as the church has stood upon the testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the, the, the bedrock testimony of the church. As we've stood on that testimony, the church has existed uh, uh, all the way throughout time and history uh, based upon that testimony. And we stand in continuity with the apostolic church. This is why as a church we consider ourselves a confessional church. And at times we read the, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles Creed as testimony that we stand in line with the, the church throughout history bearing witness to who God is. Um, and who he's revealed himself to be. And and we stand upon the scriptures as our foundational truth. Uh, And so when we think about our uh, our unity, we have this continuity with the church throughout history. Now, uh, we also have this sense in verse 23 that not only do we have unity across time and history with the apostolic church, but we have this calling to the local church because verse 23 talks about how unity flows out of and is expressed by love between God's people within the church. It says that uh, it talks about the love that the father has for the son that we also would share among us. He says that it would uh, the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me later on. It'll go down at the very end in verse 26. And it will say that he has made known and will continue to make known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. The love which the father had for the son may be in us that our life together would be defined by love. And, and here's the thing, as we talk often, the, the New Testament doesn't envision a Christian apart from belonging to a church because you can't love amorphous, uh, vague people. You only can love real people, right? Right. You only can love actually other people. Like it's easy to say you love all those people out there. But I'm talking about you got to love me and, and my faults and my foibles. And I've got to love you and your faults and your foibles. And we have to bear with one another and and, uh, and and serve one another and forgive one another and care for one another. This is the vision of the local church is that it's God's people in love united Not in a vague, amorphous way, but in a very real way, real people, real commitment to one another. And this is the relationship we have, the unity that Jesus prays for is, yes, in continuity with the apostolic church, but also a calling to the local church. And when when Paul talks about this in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, he says it this way. He says, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, um, and which... He was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. In Philippians 2, 2 through 4, it tells us that if you want the mind of Christ that he demonstrated in his death and resurrection, the way you live out the mind of Christ is by considering others and more important than yourself and by humbly serving others by looking out for not only your own interest, but the interest of others. That's the calling of the local church, being in the local church. Our unity flows out of and is expressed by love. And I think sometimes we we look at these verses and and it's this calling to the local church and this calling to relationship, this unity in relationship with God and with one another. And it's easy sometimes, we kind of get a little sentimentality going and we think, why can't we just all get along? You know what I'm saying? How many churches there got to be right like why why can't we all agree I don't know if you ever thought this um, you know why 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 is this church and that church and this denomination and uh, this network and this thing over here why can't we just all love one another and not be mean to each other and and I think there's a sentiment to that like right we shouldn't be okay with being mean to each other and we should ask why there are differences and distinctions but we we have to be careful that we don't We don't think and and, and embrace that Jesus is saying here that we should have unity at all costs. This isn't unity at all costs. Because the unity that we have with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and with one another is grounded in truth. It's grounded in the revelation of who God is. This is why it says... Uh, in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also uh, whom you have given may, may be with me to see my glory that you have given me. And, and he goes on to say in verse 26, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known to them. The unity that we have is grounded in the truth of who God is and who Jesus is and what he came to do, which is ultimately recorded in God's word. So it's unity in relationship, but it's unity in truth. That's why it requires the word of verse 20, the word of their testimony, the good news of the gospel and the the glory that Jesus revealed in verse 22, the revelation of who God is and why Jesus came. So it's not unity at all cost. It's unity grounded in the truth. And D.A. Carson, a commentator, said it's not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator, meaning we don't just say, look, everybody, Love God and do good to others. And that's the lowest common denominator. It's not grounded in that. He says it's our common adherence to the apostolic gospel Gospel by love that is joyfully self-sacrificing, by the undaunted commitment to the goals of the mission which Jesus gave us, and by a self-conscious dependence on God for life and fruitfulness of Him. It's grounded in what God has revealed and why Jesus has come. And so this is why truth matters. This is why as we think about our unity, we, we rightly prioritize the most foundational unity of who God is and, uh, and why Jesus has come. And salvation by grace through faith in Christ of a, a literal death on the cross for our sin, a, a literal resurrection from the dead, a literal return at the end of time. These things are foundational to our faith and we can cooperate across all kinds of, uh, uh, of d- distinctions and denominations when we're grounded in those theological truths. It's why we pray for other churches in our community. It's why we lock arms and serve with other believers in our community. Uh, It's why we seek to plant churches, why we want to revitalize churches. Uh, We we believe that our unity is grounded in the truth, and this truth is what compels us to live on mission. And so uh, we have a unity that comes from our relationship with God, expressed in our relationship with one another, but must be grounded in the truth. And then ultimately it leads us, uh, our unity in the truth leads us to a unity and mission, which we'll, we'll come back to um, in, in just a minute. But I, I want to encourage us with, with this final point of how we grow in unity, because you notice in verse 23, it says that we are to become perfectly one, insinuating that we grow into this, that our unity is given to us by God, but it's something into which we must grow. And consider how you can grow in unity. This isn't Uh, Anything unique, it flows out of this passage as well as some others. But walk with God. Our, Our unity depends on each of us walking with God and knowing him. If that's not foundational, then our unity isn't in, in the gospel. It's in something else. So walk with God, know the truth, be grounded in the scriptures. If the unity is in truth, if unity isn't at unity at all costs, but is unity in the truth, then we should know the truth. We should also love generously because we've been loved generously. We should serve humbly because Christ served humbly. Here's one I struggle with sometimes. We have to be patient with one another. We have to forgive and like really forgive, not like I forgive you, but it'll never be the same. And of course, I say this often. There are significant uh, sins that uh, perhaps are, go beyond just a sin against one another, forms of abuse, things like that, where trust has to be rebuilt. I'm not glossing over those things, but I'm saying in the everyday run of the mill interpersonal conflict in the life of the church, um, we can't have like a, I forgive you, but I really don't like you anymore. Like Jesus doesn't go for that. Jesus doesn't say like you can you can kind of like say you forgive, but then act like you don't forgive them and carry on with resentment in your heart. So like forgive and Jesus says really forgive not like once, but 70 times seven, which means keep on forgiving as long uh, until until he returns and then seek forgiveness. This might be as hard as forgiving to be the one when you know you've you've done wrong to seek forgiveness. To, to be the one that said, I, I shouldn't have said that. I said that in a way and it came out this way and. And these things are going on in my heart and I know that hurts you. I'm sorry for the way I said that. Hey, if if this came across the wrong way, if, if I hurt you or I know I did hurt you because we had this situation, please forgive me. We forgive and then we seek forgiveness and then we pray for unity. We pray for it just as Jesus prayed for it. How can we not share with him in praying for unity? And then ultimately, Jesus goes on to pray not only for Uh, our present unity, but our future hope in verses 24 through 26. And we'll we'll go through this quickly because of our our time and closing with baptisms. But Jesus says that what awaits us is glory unimaginable and love undeserved. Look at verse 24. He prays that we would be with him, reunited with Jesus in the Father to see and experience the glory that Jesus had before the foundation of the world. He wants to take us back to that. We've never seen it. He's experienced it. He left it to come to save and rescue us. He says, I want you to be with me. I want to take you home. And I want to show you glory that you haven't even begun to see. You see in part now, but I want to show it to you fully then. And then he goes on to say, to talk about the love uh, that that he has, um, the father has for the son may be in us. This love undeserved. And and, and what he's saying here is that if we presently share in the love that the Father has for the Son, we can be sure that we will see the future glory of the Son that he shared with the Father in eternity past. To know that you have the love of God, that you've trusted in Jesus, is to be assured of the future that you have and the glory that is unimaginable that will be yours and mine. Because we're in Christ. That's where we're headed. And he ends with this forward-looking statement saying that he's praying that we would be grounded and encouraged by this future hope. To keep on pursuing unity as well as to keep on pursuing our witness. And this future hope compels us to seek unity. Because listen, if you know you got to be with each other for all eternity, this is the dress rehearsal. It better get serious, Right? (laughs) So you've been in plays. You know, the dress rehearsal is really important. This is the dress rehearsal for all eternity. We're stuck with each other if we're in Christ. And that's good news. Because who we are now isn't who we'll be then. God's continually at work transforming us. When I got married and I said to my wife, for better or for worse, this is what you got. The good news for her was that God wasn't done with me on March 5th, 2011. He kept working. There's been some ups and downs, some valleys in there, you know. But he's changing me, transforming me to be more like Christ. The same is true in the body of Christ. And we are in this uh, together. And it compels us to pursue unity as well as compels us in our witness. We have a hope that this world is dying to hear. As well as it sustains us in our pursuit of unity and in our witness. And ultimately, John 17, Jesus shows us what he prays for us. And I want to conclude with these final thoughts to encourage us to update our prayer list. Because the thing that I've continually been challenged by as I read John 17 is that a lot of the things I pray for in the daily course of my life um, don't always match what Jesus prayed for us. The way he prayed, the things he prayed for, I think we would do well to update our prayer list and add these things to what we're praying. Jesus prayed that we would see and delight in who God is and what he's done for us. Do you pray that for yourself? Do you pray that for others in the body of Christ? God, help us to delight in you. Help us to further embrace what you've done for us. Jesus prayed that we might praise God that we belong to the Father, are secure in the Son, and empowered by the Holy Spirit? Do you take time? We we looked at the Lord's Prayer, how it taught us to begin with adoration. Do you adore what God has given you in making you a child of God and securing you in your relationship with Him? Jesus prayed that we would be guarded from the evil one and from our own sinful desires. He prayed that we might be kept from the evil one and, and kept by His power and secured in our faithfulness and obedience to Him. Sometimes we we pray that just temptation would be taken from us. We need to be prayed that we would be strengthened to resist it and to grow through it. We pray that we would find our joy fully in Christ. We oftentimes pray about the circumstances in which we aren't finding our joy in without turning to him and saying, Lord, help me to find my joy fully in you. He prays that we would be set apart as holy through the reading and obeying of God's word, sanctified by the word. When you pray and when you look at God's word, are you praying, God, help me to, to obey your word. Help me to be set apart. Help my life to be distinct, not for the sake of being distinct, but for the sake of honoring you and demonstrating that you are worthy. He prays that we would go into the world, our community, our campus, our workplace, our neighborhood, as if we're sent by God as his witness, believing that he doesn't get our address wrong, believing that he's put us in the places that he's put us and the people that he's put around us for a reason, not and not allowing that to be a burden, but receiving that as a gift and a call. He, He prays also that that others might believe through our testimony. Are you praying for the people that God has put in your life by name? Who's one person you're praying for by name that they might trust in Christ? If you don't have one, I pray that you would, you would ask God until he would give you one. And then you wouldn't let go of it until they put their faith and their trust in Christ. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a coworker, Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a neighbor. But I can tell you, if God puts them in your mind, it probably wasn't the devil who did it. So you can take it as a good sign that God put them there and persevere in praying for them. And then pray. He prayed that we would seek and cultivate unity in the body of Christ. You pray for the body of Christ, not just that we might grow outward, but that we might grow inward in our love for God and our unity with one another. He prays that we would know the amazing riches of the love of God. Do You just take time to think about the love that God has given us. Ephesians says that we might know the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God. Like, do you even know the dimensions of the love of God? I'm not good at geometry, but like I think he's saying, it's like really big and expansive. There's a lot to figure out about the love of God. And then to remember the future hope that we have through faith in Christ. Man, don't we need that? When our circumstances seem to cave in, when life is hard and it doesn't go the way we want, that we have a future hope. And I think if we pray these things, then we'll be the kind of people who seek these things in our lives and in our church and in our community. We're going to pray, and we're going to transition to celebrating baptism. So pray with me.